You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. This morning we have a special guest in addition uh, to me speaking, and her name is Casey Holly, and she leads a ministry located in Bonham uh, called Isaiah's Closet, connected with the Foster Village of North Texas and, uh, and nationwide. And so many of you know that uh, our family has been involved in the foster care process for the last couple of years. Uh, I, say, I said in the first service like we're still fostering because it feels like it, but we're actually not. Uh, we, we have a connection with both of our uh, former families that we've, uh, the sibling groups that we've hosted, and, and we still uh, connect with them and uh, couple of them are with us even this weekend. But uh, the Williamsons are also foster parents. And, um, but in this process, there's a need. There's a need. There's a need for foster parents and foster parent support. And so that's why we're here today. This is Foster Care Awareness Month. And so she's going to share with us about the need in our own county, in our state, and, and how we can partner along. And I'll just share this. When you take a call at 1 a.m. in the morning and you say yes to three, three little girls coming into your home, there's a lot that rushes through your mind about what has to happen in the next several hours. When they show up and they have the clothes they have on and a set that came from Walmart because the stickers are on them and that's it. You have immediate needs based on their ages and, and, who, and sex and uh, uh, all the needs that go with that, car seats, all kinds of things, cribs, all this stuff starts r- running through your mind at 1 a.m. before they arrive the next morning. But then there's people like Casey who you call, and by the time you drive to Bonham, she hands you three duffel bags full of clothing and items for your family and says, God bless you, and we're with you. And so uh, she is a hero to me, and that's why we're excited that she's here to share today. And I told him last time, I'm telling him again, I usually don't cry until the end of this, so it kills me whenever I have people who have actually served, um, and I get to see them. Um, So this is Foster Care Awareness Month. We're on the last Sunday of Foster Care Awareness Month. Um, And since I don't know the majority of you, but I do know some of you, um, I want to introduce you to my family. This is um, me and my husband, Josh, and our seven children. Five of them were adopted through foster care. Um, So that is why this is so near and dear to my heart. Um, We started fostering in 2013. Um, By 2016, we had filled our home. We had gone from one kid to six kids in three years, and we felt like we could still do more. Um, That's when we opened the Isaiah Closet. We ran it out of our garage for two years, and then our community came alongside us and said, we want to do more. Um, So we were able to open a resource center, which, like he said, is in Bonham. Um, And in that resource center, we have our care closet, which is the items, the clothing, car seats, beds, school supplies, everything those kids could possibly need whenever they do come into a home um, with nothing. Um, But we also have a place for family visitation where parents and children can come together um, and be together in a holistic environment. Um, And we have a place for 
foster parent support groups and um, gatherings and all that kind of stuff right there in the resource center. Um, so the next thing I'm going to share with you is I'm going to rapid fire some statistics at you. What I want you to remember is that every single number you hear has a name and has a face. These are real people, real children who really need help. So current statistics for Grayson County, in foster care and kinship care during the 2021 fiscal year, there were 282 children in foster care. In alternate response, which means that CPS was called, the children don't need to be removed from their home, but they do need services. So CPS served them in a different capacity. There were 462 children in Grayson County. Children currently waiting for adoption as of today in Grayson County is 35 children. The number of churches in Grayson County, which I want to share with you, um, simply because this is our job church. It is our job to come alongside these children and care for them. There should not be a foster care crisis with 200 churches in Grayson County. So the current statistics for Region 3, which is the region Grayson County is in, um, we have we're, we're Region 3, there are 11 regions in Texas, and in our region there are 19 counties. In those 19 counties, there were 9,021 children in foster care during 2021. Alternate response, there were 22,765 that received alternate response. And there are currently 945 children waiting for adoption in our region. So the current statistics for Texas in 2021, there were 45,870 children in foster care at some point in 2021. There were 71,331 children who received alternate response services. There are currently almost 6,000 children in the state of Texas waiting for adoption. There are 27,000 churches in the state of Texas. The number of children who are placed in the county they are actually removed from. So this is children from Grayson County who are actually staying in their community and not being pulled and put somewhere completely different, out of their schools, out of their churches, away from their families. Only 35% of children stay in their own communities. The rest of them are moved very far. Um, we have some children in Fannin County specifically, that's where we're located, who are um, placed as far south as the Mexico border. So we're talking eight plus hours to get there. This next statistic I want to share with you simply because whenever, you, whenever I read the last slide to you, I want you to keep this number in your head. The average number of placements for children in foster care, as of March, this statistic holds true, 3.5 placements per child who is in foster care. That means once they come into foster care, they're put in one home and then moved and then moved and then moved again. Foster parents often feel tired and alone. Most families foster for less than one year, citing burnout and lack of support as the reason they stop. At the same time, 85% of people who are not foster parents say that they do care about the vulnerable children of our community and they want to help. So what do we do to help? This month, Foster Village is focusing on giving tangible action steps to the people of our community because we understand that not everyone can foster but every one of us can do something. We all have a part in this, in solving this foster care crisis. So the things that I'm put on this slide are just some little 
easy things that we can do. We can start a foster care ministry in this church to help families within your congregation as they step out and become foster families. You already have at least two. I don't know if there's any more besides that here, but um, you have at least two foster families that you as a congregation can be wrapping around and providing support for. You can pick up action steps, pick action steps from the 10 practical tip sheet and follow through. The most important part is that you follow through with the step you pick. I have these sheets over on this table that you can grab at the end of the service. You yourself can sign up to foster and adopt. Um, you can step into volunteer roles with organizations such as Foster Village or CASA. You can also help families break the gener generational cycles um, and hopefully stop it from ever leading to foster care by supporting programs such as Celebrate Recovery and Getting Ahead. Both programs are available in both Fannin and Grayson County. So this last thing I'm going to read to you and I'm going to sob, so just ignore that part and try and focus on the words. Um, this is my daughter Monique. She came to me whenever she was three and a half years, or she was almost three and a half years old. She'd been in foster care since she was one. Um, in the three months prior to her coming to my home, she had been moved seven times. She had been in seven different families. So the other piece that you need to know is that we recently moved out of the home that she was placed with us in. Um, it was a red house. So we were sitting on the back porch together, and she came up to me, and this is the interaction that happened. She said, Mom, I miss the red house. It's where I stopped. And I said, stopped what, babe? And she said, it's where I stopped having new families. I stopped having new moms and dads. It's where I found our family. It's where I stopped. I felt real heavy. Over the last couple of years, she started sharing more in detail, uh, more details and feelings about what she went through when she was in foster care. Usually we work through what she tells us, and then I tuck her words down in my heart. I won't ever be the one that shares her whole story. But this piece, these words felt different. So a few days after this conversation, I approached her, and I asked her permission to share. Her response felt even more profound than her initial comment about stopping. She said, before I say yes, I want to know why. I told her how brave I thought she was and how I thought maybe her words and the way she put it might help other grown-ups understand how important helping kids in foster care is. Then she said, please share it. No kid was made to have a lot of different families. No kid should have to feel like I did. Every kid should have their place to stop. And it feels like there's probably a whole sermon in there, but I want to leave it with her courageous words. Every kid should have their place to stop. And now you can see why she's a hero of mine. Uh, people say stupid things, right? Uh, we, when we open our mouths, I, I do it all the time. As a foster parent, I've heard this one statement more times than I can count. Is I could never be a foster parent because it would hurt so much when I had to say goodbye that I just could never do it. And so what that says is that your pain is more important than the pain of the child. And it also says to me that somehow I don't care enough or care as much as you would, which if you've ever been, I, I, 
that's probably, I'd say that's not true, but uh, it's hard. It is hard. But sometimes hard things are worth it. And my pain is worth more than someone else's for a child. And what we've kind of realized is you don't always have to say goodbye. <laughs> and so there's that too. So I just want to challenge you with that. Uh, Casey will be over here after the service, available to share more information how we can be involved and how, as a church, she's going to be helping us grow into this uh, and to support and walk beside families uh, in this process and to help you maybe in this process. And so we're, we're excited that she's here today. With that, what she shared today is not a break from the study of Micah. When we look at over the last uh, month, we've been walking through Micah, uh, Pastor Mike and Jace last week. And if you have ne- not been here, those messages are available on our app and uh, podcast form, and they're available to listen. But as we look at Micah, this Old Testament prophet, there are some things that m- we learn about God in Micah. <laughs> and in that, we see where this fits perfectly, and I'll share that. But... Some of the things that we learn as a whole about God and its character from the book of Micah. And this list is available in the app with the references uh, to where you can look at these later. But both the ancient and modern readers can learn about the character and and, uh, characteristics of God in this book. He is a God who takes his covenant with his people seriously. He is a God who controls the nations, even the Assyrians. He controls them still today. He is concerned about the little people and their exploitation. God cares. And like she said, those aren't just numbers. Those are individuals. And our scriptures tell us that God knows them. Knows them. He created them. He formed them. He designed them. He knows the hairs on your head and he knows the hairs on theirs. And they are loved by him. He is concerned with the little people and their exploitation. He is concerned with truth-telling. He is concerned about a just society and the importance of human rights. He is concerned about the damages of war in our world. And what we learn is he is not a distant figure watching us like we're some form of entertainment, but he is one who cares for the victims of oppression and is angry at the oppressors. He is concerned about why we gathered here today, that our worship not be a ritual or a performance or a checkbox, but that we live a life of dedication. When there's 200 churches in Grayson County and there's kids living in hotel rooms and offices for weeks, he cares that we act justly, that we love mercy, and we humbly walk with our God, and we don't just come and sing songs. And that's what we learn about God in Micah. And so foster care awareness and foster care involvement fits right into the heart of who God is in the study of Micah and who we should be. But this week, this week, it's been a hard week, has it not? It's been a hard week, and we walk in heavy. I walk in heavy today. I didn't know, we don't know what the weeks face and what we wake up to in the news. 
But when Mike asked me to preach and to preach on Micah 5, and both Jason and I talked about we probably should have switched because of our hectic weeks. Uh, I had an easy week leading up to when he preached, and he had a hectic one, and then I had a, heart, a hectic week, and, and I'm preaching, and he had an easier week this week. So we should have switched, but we didn't. And I'm thankful in this way because as my heart was heavy, I got to dig into Micah chapter 5 and Micah's hope and our hope. And it, my downcast head was lifted high because of what I found. And I come to you today in an effort to share and to share that with you and hopefully to lift your heads and with hope today. This week alone, we've had a pretty, we've seen a hopeless state that we live in. We have watched evil personified. We've watched pure evil destroy lives and families and a community. We've watched, and it affects all of us. As a young kid, terrorism was always on distant shores when I watched the news. And I did watch the news because I was a nerd. And I watched the news but one of the things that you read about terrorism, and this was an act of terrorism, is that terrorists take your everyday activities and bring fear to those things. That things that you think there's security in, there's routine in, and they bring disaster and attack and harm. So much so that everyone lives in fear, not just those affected by the act of terrorism that happened and I can tell you by the nods in this room of, of what I just said, we felt the act of terrorism this week when we took our kids to school. When we realized that we're not as safe as we think we are. We're not as in control as we think we are. And our innocence and our, has been attacked. And that's what terrorism does. We saw evil this week. And it weighed heavy on my heart, and I know on your heart. And you might, maybe you followed this story, but I know we have as a staff. Maybe you read about our own issues as Southern Baptists as we made national news this week. Not for good reasons. And if you've paid attention, last year, in June every year, we have a Southern Baptist convention. And several years ago, the Houston Chronicle put out an in-depth study of sexual abuse that in the Southern Baptist Convention and the problems that we have struggled with and kept silent about. And then last year in our convention, and the way it works, we don't have a hierarchy of top-down. We, we have a, uh, an upward from the bottom-up approach, but we have leaders who are in positions in the executive committee and run our everyday. We don't have a hierarchy that tells us we're the opposite. Uh, we're autonomous. Our churches are on our own, but we partner with other churches and to do things like missions. And, to, uh, and so in that, there was a motion on the floor of our convention, is the way it works, that there be an independent study of the sexual abuse that had been brought to light by the outside source of the Houston Chronicle. And it was tried to be struck down, and, and it, but it carried forth, and the voters, the messengers, church members, and church pastors, it passed and so much for it, it creates so much tension in, in the upper levels of our convention that people, our president, uh, our executive director of, 
of our, of our convention resigned. Our lawyer resigned. And, uh, and all these things that said we can't do this and we can't have this study and we can't do this and can't do that. And what we have found as this independent study came to light this week, as it dropped this week, is that we've known about our problem, we've hidden our problem, we've covered up our problem, we've allowed abusers to move from church to church without sharing to other churches of what this person had done and had been accused of, and we have a problem, much like some of our Catholic brothers and sisters had in the past. And it's not just, we're not, a, we're not separate from that. And we had a problem. We had a problem that people in leadership thought that the institutional high, the institution was more important than individuals. We thought that our, our governance, our, who we are as a, peop, as a Southern Baptist, was more important than the vulnerable and the abused. And Micah tells us we're, they're wrong and we've been wrong. And we need to repent and change. It's been a heavy week. It's been a heavy week. Not even to count on that we add on to that, that we watch a war, a world away, but yet not. And we see the devastation each morning caused by an invasion. We see that horror. And then we face, even ourselves, the un known threat of financial securities that's been attacked by continual rising costs of inflation and things that we put our trust and our hope in have been affected. And we sit here this week, this week, that happened this week, and it was hard, it was heavy. But as we read in Micah 5, we have hope. We have hope. And so I'm going to ask you to join me in Micah chapter 5. Hope was needed to Micah's readers, hearers of the day, and to us as readers today. He shares that we have a hope in salvation. We have a hope while persevering through the struggles and tribulations of life. We have a hope because of a future victory. And finally, that there are some dangerous substitutes for a hope that many of us rely upon instead of trusting in the one who brings real hope. I'm going to be honest with you today. You probably won't hear anything new from this guy. I'm not going to give you any earth-shattering stuff today. But it's stuff we need to hear. Stuff we need to hear again. The stuff I needed to hear today. And Micah shares it with us. And so today, as we read Micah chapter 5, for time's sake and brevity, as I read, I'm going to share about that verse and then kind of pull these thoughts together as those four encompassing things that Micah shared with us uh, and at the end. So we're going to read in verse 1. It says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. And so uh, they're, they're about to lose a battle, to be honest with you. They're about to be attacked, and they're about to lose. And, and Micah shares that with the people and he, and he shares with these people, the, and he's sharing to Jerusalem, some other translations speak of a large walled city. So he's 
speaking of Jerusalem and this, what you think is uh, uh, safe, but it's going to be attacked, and the siege is going to be laid upon them, and they're going to lose. And so this is a prophecy, a prophecy of something that will, he's saying is going to come into the future. And so he says, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so what we see coming shortly after this is some messianic prophecies or prophecies about the Messiah or prophecies about the chosen one, prophecies about Jesus, about our Savior. And so in this first section, he's speaking to them about what's going to happen. And this prophecy is not about Jesus, but about Zedekiah, the last ruler of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar blinded by having his soldiers strike him in the face with a rod. And so what we have here is, is, is this a prophecy of what would happen but then we see in chain, verse 2, some things change. He changes the location of his audience. And he changes uh, his prophecy and what it entails. And he says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And what we see here, this is a verse that we read Often in December, not so much in May, because this verse is also in Matthew, and we'll get to that in just a second. And so what we see, this is a prophecy. He switches from Jerusalem and the large city to Bethlehem. Uh, it goes from importance to non-importance. It goes from Dallas to Van Alstine, right? And so, uh, and he says nothing, you know, you're little, you're not important. You're not on any list of important cities. You didn't make the top 47 list. And so... Micah changes the audience, and he chooses, and God says, out of this small, insignificant city, I will bring significance. And that's what God does to cities, and that's what he does to people, right? First Corinthians says, instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful, and he does that in cities, and he does that with us. And so this verse is often quoted, like I said, in Matthew. And in that, uh, it's the story of the wise men coming to Herod, King Herod, to look for the new king. And where did they come to? They came to the big city. They went to Dallas. They went to the palace. They went to the big building. They went to the king. And, say, and, and Herod's like, whoa, I don't know about this, this rival that you speak of. And, but... He tells, and this is a prophecy, and so he brings in the religious leaders, and he asks them where this Messiah that's been foretold, where was he, where's he, what was it saying about where is he to be born? Where can I find him? And they said, quote, the word, here's the words of the prophet, and they quoted Micah 5.2. And so he says in Bethlehem, that's where. And so as, we, as, a, as a Christian, uh, one of the things I grab onto my faith most is, is not that it's is the connection of these fulfilled prof- prophecies. That's the point, right? There's a, there's a golden re, uh, a re, line of redemption from the beginning of Scripture to the end and the story of, G, of Jesus being God's plan A for us for salvation. And in that, there's a, this thread of redemption and Micah is part of that thread. Isaiah, his contemporary, is part of that thread. Psalms, when they speak, these things that speak of 
the coming one, the Messiah. Not just the leader that will free Israel, but to free us. And so in that, we see the fulfillment in Jesus. And it's one of the things I grab onto in my faith is, is the fulfillment of these prophecies that were written thousands of years before Jesus was born, but fulfilled in him because God had a plan. God had a plan. And so in verse 3, part of the plan is pain. It says, therefore, he shall give them up until this time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The birth of the king would come, but it would come later, and it would come after pain. Much like in a childbirth process, the pain of giving birth is brought forth into the joy of new life. And in that, he's saying, much like that pregnant woman giving birth, is we as a people, we will go through these struggles, we will lose battles, we will be conquered, we will be spread out. And in that, there is hope, though, because in that pain, it's like the pain of childbirth, because there's one coming. It's not for fraud. And so in that, they're attacked and defeated, but there is hope, hope of new life. And he talks and he goes into what we read to start this service about the shepherd king. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. This is not one as if it comes from man. It comes in the majesty and the name of the Lord. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, to ends of time. And he shall be their peace. This Shepherd king, we don't have a shepherd, we, we don't have a king or a shepherd king who sits idly by. We have one who stands watch, one who's active, one who cares about us, cares about foster children, who cares about those in Uvalde. He cares. We think we care. We didn't create. He cares. And in that, the king would do more than vanquished conquerors of his age, but the peace with God and rest securely in his sacrifice for sin and defeat death. That would be the king that comes. Micah's hope was in salvation, and it is our hope. And he tells about the, in this prophecy of the coming one, the Messiah, the one foretold and the one who fulfilled the prophecies found in Micah throughout the, and throughout other scriptures. The hope of the ancients came to be that of God's son, Jesus. And that was Micah's hope. And it was Micah's hope that he was sharing with his people. And it is our hope. It is our hope today. The hope of their country, that's what they were focused on. The hope of their country, but more than that, was extended to all mankind. This Messiah that was needed. And we are a part of that blessing, thankfully. Our hope is in a shepherd king who could protect only what he can protect and gives, and that's salvation. Realization is we can lose everything here, but there's one thing that we can't lose as believers in Jesus Christ, and that's our salvation. We can destroy the body. We can't destroy our soul, and who's, who's it protected by? Because it is in his hands. And in that, the ultimate of security is not in us, thankfully. It's in the hands of the Savior, the hands and the feet that were nailed to the cross for us. The hope is in Jesus, the hope of Micah speaks of, and it's the hope that we have as we face trials and tribulations in this life. 
and it's the hope that we have while persevering. We read on in, a, in Micah 5, 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, that shows defeat. You conquer, when you, you conquer a land, especially when you invade the palace. If you watch coups in history, this is this, the, when the victory is done for that, those people is when they invade the palace. So he's saying, when the Assyrian comes in our land and treads in our palaces, when we lose, when we lose, he says, then we will raise against him seven, seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And poetically, poetically, Micah is saying that there's a large number of leaders. Now, you're awake now, right? I did not cause that. It happens every so often. We don't know why. But verse 6 it says, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at the entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. We see that Micah changes from verse 5 to verse 6 from multitude of leaders that will rise up with the people and to help them never give up against their Assyrian conquerors or whoever the conqueror might be. But then he, said, he switches to a singular person in that Micah changes from multiple to singular of importance. And the Messiah will come even when the enemy seems to be the victor or is the victor. Micah says there's going to be one who comes. And he shall deliver us. And so even when evil treads in our palaces and walks among our land. And evil treads in our palaces and walks among our land. Even then, we have a belief in the one who will come. Micah implores his people not to look at the circumstances. Not to look at the apparent victories by evil. But to know there's one who will come to win the war. We might lose battles, but we know and we have faith in what the word says that we will win the war. And in that, it gives us hope to keep moving on. Hope to persevere. Because when you are hopeless, you don't keep going forward. You give up. And hope is important. It is powerful. It's powerful to a people, uh, and it's powerful to our faith. James tells us, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Hope gives strength to our legs to keep on running, and hope gives strength to our faith to keep on believing. Perseverance is of prime importance to a conquered people. Hope and perseverance is important when evil seems to have won. It's important to us. Micah's hope is our hope today. Verse 7 says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. And a remnant is leftovers. So as the Assyrians invade the palaces and they invade our land, our remnant shall be in the midst of many peoples. And it's talking about the diaspora. And as they're spread out, and as we know about the Israeli people are spread amongst the nations, 
the people left after the military losses will be dispersed. And he speaks to these people that they will be two things to the nations that they will be living amongst. One, they will be a blessing like a dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which to delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. But they will also be a curse or seen as a curse to those nations. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. Paul speaks of something similar in talking to us as believers and how we're perceived in his day and in our day. And we see in Corinthians, it says this, He has made us captives and continues to lead us in Christ's triumphant procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. We're viewed the same way today as Micah's hearers would be viewed for their, for their uh, lives and, and, and as a country. But he says in verse 9, don't give up here. Your hands shall be lifted up over your adversaries, adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. We have seen in history that the people of Israel have a spiritual blessing that is hard to define and understand outside of Scripture. He's enabled them to outlast the persecutions of a king like Nebuchadnezzar and outlast a name that we know like Hitler. Micah spoke of a future victory, and that future victory brings hope to the people. As they're defeated, they believe in a future victory. Our scriptures remind us of a similar victory when evil will be defeated. This week it seemed like evil won some battles. But we will see it cannot stand. Jesus told Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a future victory when we lose battles, when evil wins, when it seems to win. We, when we have all Read and seen present day's victory to evil, we have been reminded of a coming victory. This future victory reminds us to press on despite the circumstances, and that's hope. These are the things Micah speaks about, and then Micah gives his people hope despite what's going to happen to their people and being spread out over the generations. There's a hope of a victory, and it's our hope too. And then lastly, there's some things for us that are hopeless substitutes to real hope. Because the, what Micah spoke about first is real hope. But look at verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off your cities of your land and throw down your strongholds. And I will cut your sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. 
And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the works of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And what we see here in verse 10 is he talks about we should not trust in horses and chariots. That's pretty easy to do, right? Don't trust in horses and chariots. Even Jared doesn't ride a horse and a chariot. The Grand Marquis is old, but the you know, horse and chariots, that's a long time ago. And so in that, we don't put our faith in those things. And so it's easy to look back and laugh at that because uh, we would not do that. But in their time and in their day, it's a mighty mil- military vehicle. And in that, even this week, I read about that in McKinney, engineers developed a, uh, a device a weapon that can be mounted on any military vehicle and it can emit lasers and shoot down drones, enemy drones. Uh, and, and that's a cool piece of technology. It's a needed piece of technology. But it's a chariot. It's a chariot. And then we see that it says, I will cut off your cities and your lands and throw down your strongholds. And it started out talking about uh, Jerusalem and its walled city and its importance and its security. And that's where people placed their security was in their walls. And he's saying you can't trust in those. We Do we trust in our cities for security? Oh, we still do. Many of us this week. We have said it, and we say it, and you hear it on the news inevitably when tragedy strikes a town like Uvalde. You will always hear, I never thought it would happen here. That's because people put faith in their walls of their city. You've done it. You moved to Van Alstine so your kids have a good education and a safe school environment. You put trust in the walls of your city. There's a lot of people moving here. They're putting a lot of trust in this city. It's a hopeless, hopeless case. Because where evil is in a heart, it can penetrate the largest and the smallest of cities. It's not immunity. And so we place our trust in many of the similar things that their people did instead of the things that we should. We place our false trust in the idols of our own personal making or our society or what our culture teaches us to idolize. We place our hope in our jobs, our salaries, and our benefit packages. And then we see inflation take it away. Micah 5 reminds us, there's a real hope that cannot be destroyed because it is not made or secured by human hands that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Micah 5 reminds us it is a hope that will get us through the hardest of times because we know the promises of a future victory. And Micah 5 reminds us our salvation through the work of the promised one, the the promised one is where our true hope can only be found. And in closing today, I want to read from John chapter 7. We talked about the shepherd king, and I want you to read about the shepherd and the king that we follow and the one who's active and cares about us. 
cares about the names on the foster care list in the state of Texas. Says this, Jesus said, truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Who enter, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We have a good shepherd. We have one that deserves our trust, all our trust, and all our hope instead of placing it in things of our own making. And that's when we can lift our heads and we can persevere this week. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you just as Micah's hearers, we need hope. But we don't need the false hope that our world offers. We need the hope offered in you. And God, as we have trusted ourselves as believers in you, we've maybe even trusted in, our, uh, in, in the hope that we've built and the hope of where we live and the hope of this and the hope of that of our own making. God, may we realize the only hope we have, the ultimate hope when the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy is that he cannot destroy what is secured by the good shepherd. God, we thank you for that. God, we love you for that. We praise you for that. We worship you for that. You're worthy. God, may you lift our heads this week. May you lift it to look to you. May we be sweet perfume to those who are open. May we be not... May we trust in that. May we share that. May we fight through when they see, see us otherwise. God, I thank you for this time together. And I thank you for Micah. And I thank you for his words then and his words now. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.